You're listening to the Pittsburgh Podcast Network. Enjoy the show. Hiya, folks. It's Craig Wolfley from my good friends at J&D Waterproofing. Think about it. Over 75 years of proven performance. They'll do anything you need to do around the house, whether it's basements, wall anchors, driveways, kitchens and bathrooms, gutters and siding, windows, roofing, so much more. It's a family-owned company. They service Western PA, Ohio, West Virginia, and Maryland. Call 1-800-VERY-DRY or go to jdwaterproofing.com. Welcome, everybody, to the Craig Wolfley Podcast, and welcome to Facebook Live. We have a special presentation as we have our most esteemed guest. Oh, really? Yes, really. I'm excited, and please, we're going to welcome here uh, General Michael Hayden, retired United States Air Force four-star general and former director of the National Security Agency, principal director of national intelligence, hang with me, general, Mm -hmm. and director of the Central Intelligence Agency, otherwise known as CIA. He is currently a principal at the Chertoff Group, serves as a distinguished visiting professor at George Mason University School of Policy, Government, and International Affairs. And general, welcome to the show. Thank you. It is an honor and a uh, privilege, sir, to have to, you here. Good to be back home. <laughs> indeed, indeed. And we're going to get into that. And first of all, I have to say, uh, as I do with, with all the men who um, do such a great job and women of this country, thank you for your service. Hell. Most deeply and, and humbly appreciated. That's oh, for sure. Thank you. And I know your family donates as well to that cause in thank terms you. of service. So thank you. Appreciate you, sir. Uh, we would be remiss if we didn't start this show with a personal observation and acknowledgement of a, the passing of a, a great man, somebody I know who, uh, your family, his family, right. uh, for me, uh, the passing of the ambassador, Mr. Rooney, um, such a, a huge thing. And I'm, I'm certainly not asking you to eulogize him, sir, because we could go 15 episodes oh, of this could. podcast. We could. But uh, I know that you would certainly like to start off by acknowledging the passing of Mr. Rooney. Oh, my goodness, yes. Faith. Family, football, Amen. Pittsburgh, you know, such such dedication in, in, in one individual. You know, when um, we came back for uh, part of the ceremony, and I stopped by the practice facility to make a short video contribution uh, for the team, mm-hmm. and, and I just said, you know what? It's hard being an icon when you're the son of an icon. And, yes. and Dan did that, and that's, yes. that's remarkable. I mean, clearly he began life in the shadow of, of the chief. Yes. And yet he established himself as, as, as someone incomparable in the city, for the team, and in the league. That's just a remarkable thing. Now, my personal uh, kind of thanks to Dan uh, comes from he just introduced me to a broader world. I told a story in that video for the Steelers. I was in college the first time I saw the ocean. All right. Now, we're not that far from the Atlantic here, but I was working at training camp. You're not talking camp. about the Mon or the... No, no, okay. no. I, I was working at the training camp, which at that time was at the University of Rhode Island. It was right before they decided to go to St. Vincent's. And I'm up there working at URI, and, and Dan and I had to go do something, and he's driving the car, and we come up over a rise, and I'm looking out and saying, oh, that's what the ocean looks like. <laughs> And, and, it, and it's, kind of, it's just kind of a metaphor that, that Dan was the one who introduced a kid from the north side who had great parents but limited horizons. He introduced me 
to, to the to the broader world and the possibilities there. That is so very cool. You know, as I sat uh, at St. Paul's Cathedral, I looked and, and everybody was there from from uh, former President uh, Barack Obama to um, Mr. Kraft and Jerry Jones and, right. and, and, and all these great luminaries. Uh, and, and, and there's so many awesome people there. And then I saw your regular man. I oh, saw yeah. people in jeans and sneakers and paying their respects. And it made me think of that line that I heard somebody much smarter than me uh, said that uh, Mr. Rooney walked with kings, but he was a man of the people. Oh, yeah, abs absolutely. You know, you, you, when you write the history of this, and Dan has written some histories, right? <laughs> yes. History of the North Side and, right. and, and, and his own uh, biography. But when you look at the history of this, Craig, I mean, I, I lived in Pittsburgh back in the day. All right, I was born here in 45. I knew what kind of city it used to be. And it went through that tremendously difficult transition mm -hmm. in the 70s right. and early 80s. And, and you realize it was the stewards that allowed everyone to keep the faith, even in the most difficult of economic transition times. Think about that. I mean, you experienced that. I, I talked to some steel workers that used to say the only thing that kept me going was knowing the Steelers were on Sunday and things of that nature. Right. And then you talk about it even in the book, which we're going to get to, which is tremendous. Um, you talk about how well the Steelers fans travel. Well, basically, they traveled years ago. That's right. They don't. Yeah, I, I, I get that. Oh, man, Steelers fans travel. Well, my wife goes, no, they don't. They live there. <laughs> yes. Because we exported talented people. For about 15 years Indeed. simply because we didn't have economic opportunities here but the, although they may have been physically removed from the city their hearts their hearts never left you know Howard Cosell had a great phrase once he said when you play the Steelers you're playing the whole city <laughs> I like that I like it Howard was an interesting character no doubt about it general since you've already already referenced it what was it like growing up on the North Shore yeah. running around with North the Roonies Shore. and everything North Shore North, yeah <laughs> Yeah, right. North side. North side. I'm sorry. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You can tell my buffalo <laughs> yeah. showed there. Yeah. Uh, actually, it, it was okay. I mean, we were pretty tight knit, working class, blue collar communities, segmented by some hills, by some highways, and by the Pennsylvania railroad tracks. <laughs> and and so seriously, we had these little little enclaves. Ours was called the Ward. All right. Okay. It's between Monument Hill, which is still there, right, and the Allegheny River, Federal Street at one end, down to Manchester. We at the used other. to have to run Federal yeah. Street. Oh, <laughs> yeah. It's brutal. Yeah, and and you know, so okay, tough, hard scrabble enough, but well valued, uh, good people, and it didn't matter what time of year it was. If you threw the appropriate ball out onto the street, you got enough people <laughs> to play within five or ten minutes. And, and so, you know, you, you played football on the street, you know, run to the Buick and hook, I'll hit you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, that, exactly. that kind of football, but, but it, it, it was a good place to grow up. You know, as you look back and, and you see the influences of, of sports and football and everything else, what directed you towards the military career? Well, I mean, our dad had served, all right, uh, during the war, so it wasn't like uh, military experience right. was alien to us. My uncle had served in the Marines. He was in Korea during the, mm. during the, the Korean War. Uh, frankly, I mean, to be really honest, universal military service back in that day meant universal military service. And so growing up in our neighborhood, you're going to serve. Mm. I mean, that was just yep. expected of you. Okay. Uh, I had a chance to go to Duquesne, so I could walk to school. 
uh, knew you were going to serve ultimately at the height of the Vietnam War. I had the chance to choose uh, to be an officer in ROTC, had a chance to choose the service in the Air Force, uh, was married shortly after leaving school, and my wife and I simply agreed, well, this is interesting, and we'll keep doing it as long as it's fun. And 39 years later, we said, okay, we're done. <laughs> now, I find that fascinating and kind of looking over your life as you – you know, you, you never set out to make a career no, of it. No. It's it, you. You even talk about this in your book, and the fact is, you you just kept going. Right. I mean, it was just the it's next a, interesting look, chapter. It, it, these were really interesting things that that we had the chance to do, and we shared them with the family. All right, and and all the decisions we made were family decisions. Now, look, you get a certain point here. You you're vested, in at least getting to twenty. Right. So you can get a retirement and so on, but but it was always interesting, and so we. Just stayed with it. <laughs> now, one of the things I love you reference about is the very first time the Steelers won a Super Bowl, you were overseas, I believe. Yeah. And then you were in the owner's box. The, Let's um, talk about so that. The, so the first Steeler win, I was on Guam. All right. Wow. And no, That's like in the middle of nowhere. Oh, yeah, yeah it, it actually is in the middle okay, of nowhere. Okay, because I'm geographically yeah. challenged, yeah. okay? Yeah. Uh, and and uh, no TV for the game. So we're listening at listening to the game on Armed Forces Radio. Okay. All right. And uh, so I just came on, oh, about 8 o'clock in the morning, Monday, Guam time, live. And so we listened to the game and the Steelers won. So that's that's one bookend. And then I was actually in the box for the last Steeler Super Bowl win in Tampa. Uh, that's the wow. other bookend. That is really cool. Yeah. And think about – all that's transpired yeah. in between the two. Because truly, I can tell you, and, and really the book is Playing to the Edge, American Intelligence in the Age of Terrorism in, in general. Um, this is a phenomenal book, and I'm not Thank saying you. this just truly. Um, you know, I'm normally a guy, I read I read brochures with a lot of pictures <laughs> and stuff like that, you know, like a lot of pamphlets, that sort of. This one was captivating on so many fronts. Um, as I examined I I finished the book, and I, I sat there, and the first thing that came to mind was uh, Bob Seger against the wind. I wish I didn't know then what I didn't know now. <laughs> you know what I mean? You think about all the yeah. things that you encompassed the beginning yeah. of this book to the end of the book, and truly, it's a phenomenal so, read. So, so what I was trying to do, all right, now, I, I get it. It's a memoir, all right? So, so you know, the, the, the linchpin as you go throughout is stuff that happened to me, but what I was trying to do in the book was to take advantage of that narrative to show folks like you what this whole community of people do on your behalf that you really don't know a whole lot about. Mm -hmm. By and large, you appreciate them, and I'm talking about right. not you personally, but the country, but by and large, your image of them is created by 24 or Homeland, Right. you know, how, how popular culture Jack looks, Bauer, looks, yeah, Jack exactly, Ryan, yeah, exactly. And, and so uh, the, the purpose is simply, hey, c come on over here. I'll punch in the cipher code. We'll go back here behind the door for a little bit. I want to introduce you to some people and let them tell you what they do on your behalf. And I did to the limits of law and policy. I did that. And, and, and frankly, every word in the book, Greg, is cleared. But I have to tell you, everything I thought I should be able to say, I got to say. Really? Yeah. 
Now, this is interesting because there's a dynamic here as I look at it from the football side and the intelligence community side. Um, and it may be from uh, too many quick stops with a chin strap on, so <laughs> forgive me if I'm overreaching. But um, the NFL and, and their desire to always kind of give you that view from inside the helmet in the locker room and so forth, sometimes I think they find themselves, uh, we pulled back the curtain too much. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of the people, you know, when you, some things come out, uh, I'm not so keen on that. Right. Well, it seems to me that the intelligence community like stuff. Twitter feeding video from a locker I'm not room naming names. after a victory or something like that general i many years ago i learned you never point the finger so you point your elbow at somebody but i mean just stuff like <laughs> yes, that exactly yeah. exactly yeah. okay you've got to be careful about what you expose and certainly i i look at the whole startup from the i mean your book from the beginning you know, I love how you open up, and you're just trying to cross-country ski with your wife, <laughs> and you got some security detail. Hey, the whole metadata is crashed. Yeah. What do you do? Yeah. Uh, yeah. You call Jack Bauer. You yeah. find somebody, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, but it, it truly, I, in, in, in reaching and, and, and sharing what you experienced in that, there's a lot of people in me that turn back and go, Bob Seeger. I wish I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, you know. well, I mean, look, it's a human enterprise. Right. So I want to introduce you to the humans who do it. And, and and also, it's you know, a, a human enterprise, just like yours, all right? Sometimes everything can go right. Sometimes you can play your best, and you look up at the end, and the numbers on the scoreboard aren't right. Right, exactly. Okay? So you do tell the story. This is hard work. Uh, success is never guaranteed. You know, you like to win more than you lose. But, it, but in reality, you need to be honest about, well, so how, so how come that didn't turn out the way we wanted it to turn out? Oh, yeah. I, there's no question in my mind. Again, starting from that, what did you? How did? What did your wife do when you're out on the golf course? Did you just leave her out there, man, or what? Actually, she. So we were we were we had had a, a large <laughs> a blizzard hit the Washington area. Um, the day before the blizzard hit, our IT system collapsed. So so NSA is out of business. All right. <laughs> all right. So you're head of the NSA at right. this point. And 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 you you got no eyes, you got no no intelligence, no nothing. So so actually, it's a little different. All right, okay. we, we we got eyes and ears. We just don't have oh, any, okay. We don't have any nervous system. Oh okay. Right? So so we're still out there collecting, okay. And it's being buffered at the point of collection, but we can't move it. You know, we can't move it through the system in order to process it, turn it into something intelligible, uh, <laughs> listen to it, report on it. Can't move it at all. By the way. That should actually tell people out there who think we're sucking up every electron and photon in the universe <laughs> that if I buffered everything for three days and I'm still okay, I'm probably not sucking up as much as you think we are. So, so, and then, and then the blizzard hit. Oh my. All right. Yeah. Now, actually, that made it a little harder to get some experts in. George Tenet, who was head of CIA then. Right. Um, commercial airlines weren't flying, but George's was. <laughs> <laughs> and and he did bring some technicians in to help us. But actually, the blizzard was good news be, because the only thing worse than being brain dead, in okay. essence, all right, was would would have been America's enemies knowing we were oh, brain dead. right, right. And the fact that we had a blizzard meant that very few people came to work. Okay. It gave us a chance to work to get the system back up. They came back to work the next day, and we had actually taped up little stickies in all the entrances to NSA. You know, where you have to swipe your 
your ID card and right. all that. And it began with, and this is, a, this is a classic example of understatement, we are experiencing intermittent difficulties with our network. <laughs> Please consult with your supervisor before logging on. And then about, about mid-morning, I had a town meeting for everyone. And I just laid it out. Folks, here's what we got. This is oh. a big deal. Now, here's your job. Okay, What I just told you is not the back half of the sentence that begins tonight after dinner while you're washing the dishes with your wife that begins with, honey, you won't believe what happened to me at work today. <laughs> oh, yeah. Keep it secret. Wow. And we did. And by Friday, we were up and running. All right. Now, Saturday, we had three feet of snow, mm -hmm. Craig. So my wife and I are cross-country skiing on the Fort Meade golf course. Right. And we're near a road, and a, and a police car seems to be synchronizing its movements with our skiing. A phenomenon that had not happened to me since I was 14 on the north side. <laughs> and that's a whole other story, brother. Exactly. And, and then he pretty much said, are you Director Hayden? Yes, I am. Get in the car. <laughs> so I threw my skis in the trunk, and my wife had to ski home alone. Oh, uh, yes. Okay. What had happened, we, we had managed to keep it secret until we were back up and running. And then John McQuethy, rest his soul, the ABC reporter, had gotten the story. And so... They, he, they, he was calling the agency to confirm. So I, I finally got into the headquarters. I called George Tennant, who was the head of uh, intelligence at the time. I said, George, they, they got the story. He said, don't say anything. Now, George, that's, that's the wrong answer. Okay, it's going it's to make it sound worse. He goes, all right, go ahead and talk, but be careful. Okay, so I get on the phone with McQuethy. McQuethy says, I've heard your whole information technology has collapsed. And uh, so I said, yes, it did, but it's fixed now. And he goes, why would I believe that? And my answer was, would I have taken your call if it had not been fixed? And he goes, good point. <laughs> Love it. And then that night, that Saturday night, ABC ran the story that we had collapsed. But by that time, remember, everything was buffered. Right. So we're... we're moving heaven and earth to work through the backlog okay and to, and to get to reporting all those things we'd have reported wednesday thursday and friday right so we were working overtime to catch up and wow we were back now now the big news story out of that and that's why that's the first chapter in the book correct phenomenal well yeah the big news story is new guy at nsa all right i don't only been there about 10 months right new guy decided there was no course of action more dangerous to the agency that I could decide to go on that, that, that was more dangerous than standing still. And at that point, I said, we got, we got to change. We're going to make some big changes. And off, and off we went. Indeed. Because, Indeed. because fundamentally, it was a failure of our leadership and management that we had let our internal IT system get to a point. I actually, in the book, I compare our IT system with that octopus plug in a Christmas story that Darren McGavin plugs yes. in, yes, and, yes. and everything sparks and the, yes. all the lights go it goes up. down. Yes, I said, that that was our IT system. <laughs> oh my heavens, that's a scary thought, brother. <laughs> yeah, it was. <laughs> that's coming from a guy in too many crashes here. Me, oh, now I I got to back up for a moment because one of the most interesting moments was 
you're watching Enemy of the State with Will Smith. Yeah. Okay. With the good Mrs. Hayden. Yeah. All right. Right before you were publicly announced as the new director of the NSA. And during the film, I love this. She leans over and she asks you, what did you have to do to get this job? <laughs> That's right. That's tremendous. Well, yeah, because in the plot, <laughs> somebody is killing a senator of the United right. States to become the deputy director. <laughs> I'm thinking your, your wife's got to be sitting there going, get Zooks, what have I signed up for? Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's when Hollywood outruns the reality. Yeah. Oh, thank goodness. Well, you, you know what I mean? But that's, that's what it does. You know, yeah. it's got to make things overly dramatic. I just thought that was so funny. The directors of the NSA, they seem to be, um, what did they refer to them as, a, a Christmas uh, Christmas help. Yeah, Christmas help. I mean, yeah. there seems to be... Look, the the, the people in, in, in NSA, the, the, the history, the tradition. Right. You sign on, you're there until you get the watch 30 years later. All right? So you, you and that's no longer true because when you work with millennials, okay. they, don't, they don't stay around so long. Okay. okay. But traditionally, it had a very long-lived workforce. And so the, the phrase for the guy at the very top was Christmas help, or, or, I, or I love this one, the current director believes, <laughs> okay, with the clear implication that uh, you aren't here forever, we are. That was the direct opposite <laughs> yeah. of the way the Steelers are run. Right. When you think about the, the head coaches with Chuck Knoll, 23, yeah. Bill Cower, yeah. 15, now you got Mike Tomlin yeah. in double That's digits. That's exactly right. It's so, so that, so that I, the, the average life expectancy at, at uh, NSA. Should we say career two, or life? <laughs> for, for, for the director. For the director. Okay. Two to three years. Two okay. three. Oh, man. I stayed six. That's s- NFL. I stayed six. My successor stayed eight. And so you, you they're, they're, that, that's kind of Stewart-like. Yes. Over 14 years, you only have two directors. Right. Which then allows the agency to have some measure of, of continuity. You would think that the intelligence community would demand a more stable it, run up it yeah seems like but you know it the, the the job we're talking about here nsa is not political uh, the cia job is viewed to be a bit more political the director of national intelligence job is viewed to be very political and i don't mean that in a negative sense okay. i just mean right. that the new guy gets to pick a new guy mm-hmm. so that's it just seems yeah in almost just as an outsider, you'd want a little more stability at the I, helm. Agreed, agreed. All right, but but again, the most important thing to the intelligence community, and this is actually fast forwarding to current events, the most important thing for the intelligence community is the personal relationship between the president and the DNI, and the president and the head of CIA. If if those are good, wow. you can pretty much fix everything. And I think I'm not telling you any flash news story here. That's been a bit prickly, establishing right. that relationship with, with President Trump. You know, the interesting – see, now, if I go back, it seems to me you had a great rela- rela- relationship, I'm sorry, with um, 43. I did, but if you realize I was a Clinton appointee to NSA. And so I was, I was viewed to, to, to being not political, Clinton appointee to NSA, Bush appointee to Deputy Director of National Intelligence, Bush appointee to CIA. And then, and then to round out the story, to give you some sense of how it works, Greg, uh, in January of '09, President-elect Obama calls me at home, kind of gives me that, it ain't your night, kid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Right. What is it like? Is it the Turk who comes to the room? The Turk. Yeah, the Turk <laughs> yeah. comes to the room and okay. says, bring your playbook. Y- yeah, this was the Turk. <laughs> okay. <laughs> coming, coming to the room. Um, 
and he was, he was very kind. He, 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 in essence, said, look, all right, a lot of things you guys have done have been controversial. I got a lot of political pressure on me to look backward. It's going to be easier for me not to look backward if I swap out directors. And I said, that's exactly right, Mr. President-elect, and thank you very much for the phone call. And then later, Craig, he calls my deputy, Steve Kappas, and says, Steve, don't be leaving now. We need continuity. We, 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 we're, we're swapping out the top, but I want you to stay, and I want you to talk everybody else on the staff to stay. So even there, where President Obama felt he needed to make this change for right. what I'll call political reasons, all right, even he knew he wanted powerful continuity in the governance. Even today, you got President Trump kind of saying some ornery things about the community. Um, the only people at CIA he swapped out were the director and the deputy director. Everybody else is career intelligence professionals. You know, one of the things that I find magnificent in this book is there's a real correlation in many ways in my eyes. The way you ran the CIA and some of the other places you've been with the way Mr. Rooney ran the Steelers. And there was a, in, in such a, what could be viewed as a, um, uh, a real separation between uh, the, the, the powers upstairs and downstairs. You took a real personal touch with your yeah. people. Hey, look, um, I had a rule, particularly in the last big jobs, all right? There's so much to be done that the, the way I'd, I'd actually take my schedule home on the weekend and look what the week would look like, and I would scratch, I would try to scratch out everything on the schedule, or put, put another way, I would preserve everything on the schedule that only I could do. But if I judge there's things on that schedule that someone else could do, I begin to suggest, you know, you might want to swap me out, send the deputy or send the division chief. They know that better than I do. So that at CIA, it might surprise some folks, I had a lot of people who could brief the president. Hmm. So I didn't have to do that all the time. I, only I, could be the dep could only I could be the director having lunch in the cafeteria with the troops. Okay. And so I I actually carved out time every week. I'd go down, get my tacos or my pizza. We had a we had a really good cafeteria. Really? Oh, yeah. oh, now it, you're it, talking the language nice. of yeah. love here, brother. Yeah, big big, big uh floor to ceiling uh, windows. So light, I would have been popular at the CIA cafeteria. Okay. Yeah. We, we had Dunkin' Donuts. We got oh. Starbucks. Sparrow. We got Sparrow. So, I, I'm, I don't know what Sparrow is, but I heard Dunkin' Donuts. Okay. That's all you got to speak. Actually, you, you don't want to go there in the morning. The line's too long. There's oh. not a whole lot of analysis happening between <laughs> 8 and 8.30. <laughs> State secrets. <laughs> yeah. Harry, stay in your seat over there. <laughs> so... Um, so I would go and I'd get my tray of my tacos or my pizza, and I would then look for an empty seat, not an empty table, right? But an empty seat, and I would sit down, put my tray down, and say, "Hey, I'm the director here. What do you do?" And then start a conversation. There's a story in the book where uh, I, I come out with my tacos one day with my with my chief of staff, mm. and there's a table for eight that's got six places filled and two empty. So ah, oh, this is perfect. So we walk up put our trays down, sit down, and say, hey, I'm the director. What do you people do around here? And they're all women. And there's this long pause, which normally doesn't happen. <laughs> and, and then finally one of them kind of speaks up and says, well, before you got here, we were trying to have a baby shower. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, yeah. But it speaks to what you're doing. You're touching lives. Every quarter, 
my wife and I would have a, a social for all the new hires yes. at the agency. I, I and, remember and, that. And, and with their significant other. So that would be spouse, boyfriend, girlfriend, or given the broad attitude the agency had, partners. Mm-hmm. All right, which we were, we were very, very accepting of, of that sort of thing. And uh, what we wanted to do was not just welcome the new officer, but to put our arm around the significant other because this is the kind of work in in which the officer cannot succeed without the understanding and frankly the support of of the significant other it just doesn't work you know it's interesting in how you you just pose that because one of the things i took away from and that you in a large part people like me don't understand is it's like Fight Club. The first rule of Fight Club is you don't talk about Fight Club. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> I mean, if your spouse is in the CIA, right? All right, who does he talk to or she talk to, and who can know? So, so the rule is, and this is actually a fascinating uh, phenomenon. And we actually used to talk to the officers at the New Hart Social. Like this started six, scheduled to end at eight. My wife and I had never left before nine thirty. I mean, people just kind of lingered, and, and they want to talk. And right. one of the questions my wife would ask the covered officer, not everybody's covered, but one of the questions my wife would ask the covered officer is, who knows? Because the officer is in charge of telling. All right? The officer understands who needs to know and also who can protect the information. I mean, you, you realize that's not, right. a, it's not a gift No. when someone tells you they work for the CIA. Right. It's a burden. Yes. Okay. And, and so we would go around and ask. And we, one story was, uh, both my parents know I wish my dad didn't. And my wife says, why? He said, he, he is so proud of me. He just lets this slip out at the barber shop. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and so it, it, one of the backstories in the book is that burden that's placed on, right. on these folks. Look, we, we send people to, to, to Kandahar. We send people to Bagram. We send people to, to, to Kabul or to Baghdad or, or, or Kirkuk or, or something. All right? If I'm a GI, okay, everybody else on base knows where I am. The other two squadrons that didn't deploy, they're driving the kids to soccer. They're mowing the grass for my wife. Right. They're dropping by saying, everything okay, you got what you need. Now I got an officer deployed in those circumstances who's undercover, living in a civilian community in Northern Virginia, and none of his neighbors know actually who he works for. So you're getting a sense of the lack of a support structure for the spouse who's left behind in, in, in those circumstances. Absolutely. So I talk a, bit, talk a bit about those burdens and what we've tried to do as an agency to, to kind of match what the Department of Defense does when, when forces get deployed more openly. You know, it's interesting because in the book you reference the fact that um, the good Mrs. Hayden uh, was a she had played a, a substantive uh, role. Oh yeah. In in the CIA and things of that nature. I mean, besides, you left the poor woman on a golf course all by herself <laughs> to ski home. With, with skis, right? <laughs> right. Uh, but she really was a, a huge part of yeah. what you did in making. The, the the faces of the CIA real to, to each other. You, you know, and she, she was wonderful. She was really, really good at it. But but she is part of a tradition, hmm. all right, that, that spouses, for the most part, spouses of directors understand that they're being pulled into this orbit as well. I'll give I'll give you an example that I don't think betrays any, any privacies. Um, 
Director Pompeo, the new director, uh, was talking to all the formers, all right, before he went for his confirmation hearing. And um, we, had, we had a nice chat. And I said, you know what, your, your wife should probably talk to my wife because she spent a lot of time, my wife spent a lot of time at the agency. Okay. The wife of the current director, at that time the current director designate, Mrs. Pompeo, was in my kitchen that afternoon. Mm-hmm. Talking to my wife, mm-hmm. and and so there is there is a good tradition in the a- agency, that that the spouse of the director embraces the community, the community of the of the agency, and tries to support it in the best way they can. It's phenomenal. Where did you get the personal touch thing? I hey, mean, how d- I, you know, I got it from my well, I could say my mom and dad, but my brother's here. My dad didn't have a particularly <laughs> soft personal touch. <laughs> But but we 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 got we actually grew up in a in a nice high valued uh, household. It, I, I do mention this in the book too. Um, you know, growing up in the North Side, growing up in these times, okay, growing up in a blue collar neighborhood, um, you learn a sense of tolerance. You learn. You know, I certainly learned this from my mom and dad. Don't be quick to judge people. Mm, okay. Yes. Okay. Take a look at things from their point of view. Take care of yourself. You know, keep yourself on the straight and narrow. Don't don't go out of your way to condemn others. That's actually a pretty good set of advice for anything. It's a really good set of advice if you're going to run a big organization, and it's incredibly good device if or advice if you're going to run an espionage agency where you are working with people, not yours but the other people, um, let's just say, who live in the shadows. <laughs> and so you're sitting across the table from someone, all right? You have no right, and it's really not very useful for you to be too judgmental about that person. Not for this business. That's deep. That's deep. Well, since not too judgmental, then tell me, what's it like to go through a confirmation hearing? Because <laughs> That's very judgmental. Because <laughs> at the other end of it, then. Yeah. yeah, look, I mean, the Constitution is set up for checks and balances, right? Right. And, and so the, when the president nominates, the, the Congress immediately gets an attitude, okay? <laughs> he could nominate St. Francis of Assisi. Right. Okay? right. And the first question is, I hear you're not very tough. <laughs> Okay. Okay. Yeah. Right. okay, I can see that. Yeah, and and so there's this there's this inner tension that's that, that's built up, and, and so you see, you just kind of have to go through. It. You have to understand it's it's not it's it's not an act, all right, but it is a role, okay, that the Congress is expected to play, in terms of filtering, the people that the president would nominate for these these kinds of jobs. You know, it's interesting because as you say this, and let me get my glasses on right side up so I can <laughs> read. Can let me. Here's one of the things that that fascinated me. Okay, you talk about Congress and you talk about the confirmation hearings. Can you tell now, do you get a samurai sixth sense when you're facing a minefield of politicians versus people who, how do I put it? There's a push-pull in the book. Yeah. There's, I mean, the dynamics of Congress and the Senate, and you get the straight shooters to the centrist to the not-so-straight shooters. How do you know when you're on thin ice? Well, okay, so when you're in the moment, all right, 
everybody up there has a history. You got a staff. You 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 know who are I'm, I'm making air quotes here now between us. Who's friendly? Right. Okay. Who's traditionally unfriendly and so on. But again, I mean, it doesn't make it right or wrong. Right. All right. They're, they've got they've got a function that they have to perform. Some are more easygoing. Some are less easygoing. Some have core issues about the business. When I was at CIA, all right. Remember, I got there in May of '06. Mm-hmm. By November of '06. Both chambers of Congress were in the hands of the opposition party. President Bush was politically weakened, and there were about a dozen and a half Democrats who thought they could be president. Mm-hmm. That's about the worst circumstance you can imagine, <laughs> being the director of CIA, right. going down there and, and presenting things. The Senate side was hard. The House side was was just a zoo. It, there were there were, were and I, I point this out in the book. There were several members of the House that Speaker Pelosi had put on the committee. Mm-hmm. Uh, several members of the House committee, who I was convinced were not convinced that we needed a CIA. It wasn't, wow. wasn't like keeping it straight and narrow. It was I don't I don't think I understand or like what it is these people were supposed to do in the first place. You got to be kidding me! No, now now after that, um, later on after I'd left government. Uh, that committee changed character altogether. And let me give real credit here to Mike Rogers, Republican from Michigan, and Dutch Ruppersberger, Democrat from Maryland. They did they did the secret handshake. They said we're going to govern this in a bipartisan way, and and the whole atmosphere of the committee changed. And so it it, it one would hope you could insulate American espionage from the hyper-partisanship of current American politics. Sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. You know, I have to, the one quote that it just jumps in my head was in the post-9-11 commission findings. You are, you're quoted saying something about suddenly there's 535 intelligence officers <laughs> on the Hill and not one of them's a Jack Bauer or Jack Ryan. Right, or, right, right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's what you're faced with so, all so the they, time. So they get, they get interested all of a sudden. Yeah. And it's how come you didn't do this? How come you didn't do that? And so on. There's, there's, look, look, your, your job is to be respectful. Your job is to try to educate them as best you can. Your is job it is, hard, though? Oh, yeah, of course at it's At times, hard. I mean. Yeah, and, and, you know, sometimes your job is go up there and get slapped around. And don't pass that on to your workforce when you go back. Mm. All right? Your, your job is to go out there and absorb that, but insulate your workforce from that emotion. Protect them. General, one of the first things that jumps out is when I, I picture, I, in my head, this is, I'm always, I kind of run through scenarios, is the book. The book is so wonderful in writing that you describe things that become jump out at you and become Good, real life, and that's you. what I love. I love the to, to ride along on this journey of your life is incredible. Uh, as you're sitting there, you, you you got these people who are acting like they know, and and I keep thinking of Jim Mora from the Saints yelling at the press. You think you know, but you don't know. Does that is that yeah. part of it? Okay, yeah, of course it is. Of course it is. But look. Um, Espionage sits uneasy inside American political culture. I, it's in the book, but I, right. I, 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 I talk about when I was director of NSA, saying publicly, you know, we only need to be two things to be really successful. We need to be secretive, and of course we need to be powerful. And we live in a political culture that frankly distrusts only two things, secrecy and power. We <laughs> didn't so, know it. Yeah, and so you've got this unhappy relationship. You know, it's got more complicated. Can, can I take a minute to... To sure. do it? Yeah. Absolutely. So, so uh, what, 
three years ago, maybe more, Edward Snowden, all that stuff goes out. The first thing Snowden's journalist friends talked about was something called the 215 program. And I, right. I can't explain it, but I don't, I don't need to. It's, it's just, it just has to do with metadata about your phone calls and mine. Right. All right? Uh, is lawful, effective, appropriate. Uh, but boy, it created a storm when it went out to the press. N n number one, it's, it's kind of edgy. I understand why people are nervous. And it was pushed out in a very negative way. Greg, NSA felt it's okay. We're going to be okay. All right? Because that program had actually been authorized by not one, but two presidents. It was actually, at, at the end, covered by statute and a law. It was overseen by the House and the Senate Intelligence Committees, who were actually pretty big fans of it. Hmm. And every 60 days, it was reviewed by the courts. So NSA is thinking, all right, we're going to have, have a bad 72, 96 hours here. But people are going to realize, and we did this one just right. We got all three branches of government, executive, legislative, judicial, checking off. We got the Madisonian trifecta here. We are, we are as constitutional as you can be. And they were wrong. It, um, it, uh, the, the public outcry continued, all right? Now, I'm not arguing about the merits of the case. I'm just right. talking about the, the, the public outcry. They thought it would go away because they had all these check marks from Congress, mm -hmm. President, Court. That, those check marks, that system was set up in the 1970s. That was, that was how, okay. we were, that's how we were supposed to get your okay. The, all right. This is the stuff. It's okay for us to do this because Congress, Court, the President said it's cool. And what really happened, Craig, and this is a big deal, a lot of Americans, and I'm not talking about the wing nuts only, just not talking about the people with tinfoil on their heads or anything. Hey, us tinfoilers, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I, 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 I'm talking about the guys who sit next right. to me at Heinz Field. Okay? Right, right. Just solid Americans. Right. Now beginning to think, you know what, Hayden? I think we just, just told me, the committees, the president, the courts, I, I'm not so sure that constitutes consent of the governed anymore. You know what? Hey, that might be consent of the governors. You may have told them, but you know what, Hayden? You didn't tell me. Craig, that's a big deal. Mm -hmm. And 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 that is where our current political you know, our look. Your your listeners know this. We we've got this macro distrust of government going on throughout the whole country, and the intelligence community suffers in in that uh, overall overall trend. And so now the big question for my guys. And I, I end the book with this question. Uh, the big question for my guys is how much of what it is they do do they have to tell you before you say you're good to go? Hmm. But knowing full well, if they tell you too much, it's not going to be worth doing in the first place because this is stuff that's supposed to be done secretly. So that's, and that, that, is, that is a no fooling question now as to how transparent American intelligence has to be with the American people, not with right. a closed committee hearing, but with the American people. Otherwise, you're going to take our to toys away from us. General, part of the problem seems to be that you can't, people can't keep a secret. When you, you start off, what was it, Stellar Wind? Yep. You felt like, okay, th you were wrong because you kept the circle too small? I, it, what, what I should have done was we told a very small group in Congress. By the way, it's you got cool names. Thin Thread, Stellar Wind, yeah, all these. Yeah. You know, I, I love all the, 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 the. That's because they don't mean anything. <laughs> that's, that's why we pick them. All right. Um, we only told, told what we call in Congress the Gang of Eight, okay. all right, which is the Intel Committee Chiefs and the two heads of both House and Senate. Um, 
that's legal. That's that's all that's required. Right. All right. So no question on lawfulness. At the political level, though, I I look back and say, nah, we should have told more people. And, and it's a little mean spirited on my part. What we did. But how can did, you trust them to keep a secret? Well, I'm not talking about telling 535. Okay. There are 22 people on the House Intel Committee, 15 on the Senate. All right. So I'm really talking about those 37. And, and here, here's why. Here's why. Um, the way we did it, all right, we went out and did this stuff, which I continue to believe was always lawful, effective, and appropriate. And the book explains why, right. that, why I believe that's still to be so. But four or five years later, when they become public, okay, we then allow members of Congress to go, oh, I'm shocked. I'm shocked. How could this possibly happen? All right. Oh, I deeply oppose these programs. We give them a hall pass to criticize See, that's... them after they feel safe again. Better, Craig, better. Go to them with these questions. When everyone's scared, when the future is uncertain, right. and say, so, big guy, you want, you want us to do this or not? Mm-hmm. And, and you know what the answer is going to be, isn't it? Right. It's going to be, oh, no, you go ahead and do it. Right. right? Oh, absolutely. So, so give them the question when it's hard. Don't give them the cheap shot four or five years later after you've made them feel safe everyone's relaxed now and then you can go back and second guess it 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 you know there there are parallels to football here yes about saying oh man i don't know why he passed on third down right that really was a bad idea in the super bowl though and uh, <laughs> with, all with, the man had to do was <laughs> kneel down kneel down and kick the field goal on fourth down yeah. but okay you you do give congress a big hall pass in that I mean, I, in terms of what, keeping the secret? Well, the ability to come back and, and act like Oh, no. Oh, yeah, we do. By doing it the way we do. By keeping, keeping only a very, very small group informed. Right. We then let the other members of the committee, and certainly all the other members of Congress, to go back and take cheap shots. All right? Man, you guys got to have thick skin. Here, we, got, we got a phrase for it in the Air Force. All right? If you want people to be with you at the crash, you got to put them on the manifest. <laughs> That's pretty good. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. The, the you know, it, it's phenomenal because as I look at this and, and this the boot the the book just shoots from the very beginning again towards the end when you've got uh, the memos being released. Yeah. Uh with This um, is after I'm out of government. This is under President Obama right. and particularly under Eric Holder. Eric Holder as, and Diane Feinstein, right, you got right. the hearings and yeah. everything. I I mean, to me, it's almost like I, I feel like I was feeling like Dead gummit, they're betraying the man. Well, uh, not not me, I, I, not not me at all. I know you wouldn't take it, it personal. Nah, it's but the agency. Let me give you some some backstory. I got nothing in it. I'm yeah. not even smart enough <laughs> to get in the door. You know what I so, mean? But, so what you're talking about here is the enhanced interrogation technique right. program, which I freely admit is edgy, and a lot of good Americans with whom I would share values and beer and pizza would say, I don't want you ever doing that. Okay, I got that. That's an honorable honorable position. I'm not one of them. Okay. Okay. But. Just when, so you know. I, got, I mean, if we're going to talk it. EITs, <laughs> yeah, yeah. just so you yeah. know. So when this started, George Tenet was director. In fact, almost all of it's under George Tenet and Porter Goss. I just have the back end. Uh, but I'm the one who explains it because I'm the one who was there when it started becoming public. And I felt, back to take care of your people, remember? Right. Yes. I felt I had to go back and defend what had happened earlier because these people were now my people. All right? But to tell the story, when the agency first began 
EITs, Enhanced Interrogation Techniques. Um, they began in late summer of 2002. Congress is out of session. They come back in September. And so the first thing George Tenet does is get up on the hill, tell these people what we're doing. So he, he sends his team up, up on the hill, and he briefs a gang of eight. Right. That's the chair and ranking of the two committees, intel committees, speaker, of the, and the senior Republican and Democrat in the Senate and in the House. All right. And he, they go brief that, that group. And they come back, and George is on pins and needles. He says, get up here right away. I'm going to come up to the office. I'm going to see you on the seventh floor as soon as you come back. And they, and they walk in, and he looks at them, and he goes, well, well? And the, the head of the team says, George, you won't believe it. And George says, oh, went bad, huh? He says, no. The only question we got was, are you sure that's enough? Which is a little different, right? A little different <laughs> than, than what you hear four or five years later. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Now I have to. I got. I got to be truthful. I thought one of the greatest quotes in the book was, "I, I, I did. You did tell the committee that four of the en- enhanced interrogation <laughs> techniques you experienced in Catholic school. Yeah. Come on, yeah. the nuns. The nuns were the first ones that taught yeah. you about. Yeah. I, I think. I think also the from the badly misnamed Sisters of Mercy. <laughs> That was so good. That was just so good, man. But I, no, I didn't mean to make, make light of it. But for the techniques, Greg, right. to give you some sense of how tightly we controlled this, for the techniques, two were grasps. Grab them. Happens to you on the sidelines. I've watched these games. Yeah. Coach grabs you by the chin. Right. Coach grabs you by the lapels. Those are two of the techniques. All right. Two other ones were an insult slap across the face, which I've not seen happen on an NFL sideline, but did happen in St. Peter's. <laughs> okay. And the other one was a backhand slap to the stomach. Those, those were four. No luck. Uh, the, the other ones, they get pretty tough. All right. Right. And, and we did waterboard three people. All right. Three people. Three people. The last one was in March of 2003. And just set the record straight, the president of these United States who said the United States was going to stop waterboarding was George W. Bush in 2006. Not right. Barack Obama in 2009. We adjusted based upon the needs of the program, the, the, the sense of threat, and frankly, how much we knew about Al-Qaeda, and which was a lot more in 06 than it was in 02. You know, it's amazing because I could tell you a game in 1989, played the Miami Dolphins in Miami, mm-hmm. and we were down 14 nothing within eight minutes. A thunderstorm opened up. It poured like there was no tomorrow. The rain got to be... Uh, up over your ankles on the sidelines when it where it drained, and I can tell you, Mike Malarkey. You remember Mike mm-hmm. Malarkey, yeah. now the head coach down at Tennessee. Yeah. Yeah. He got waterboarded. <laughs> he caught a pass on third down, <laughs> went into the water. Everybody piled on. I'm pulling people off. I hear Malarkey at the bottom of the pile going, Help! <laughs> he can't breathe because he's getting waterboarded at the bottom yeah. of the pile. But certainly, yeah. um, as you look at this, I mean, balancing the need to know, the intelligence need to be gained. And the public's perspective—I don't know how you do it. It look, uh, one of the themes in the book, and this is one I really want to emphasize before we end, is that uh, occasionally, because of enemy of the state and Jack Bauer and Jack right. Ryan and all that, the public perception is that the people inside these agencies are somehow different than you or me. I, I get asked, "What kind of person joined CIA?" And I said, "Well." They're kind of like your friends and neighbors. And, oh, by the way, if you live where I do, they are <laughs> your friends and neighbors. I, I We go out and watch our granddaughter play soccer, and I look around the field at the parents and go, oh, I know him, I know her, I know him. All right? 
and so I want to fight against the concept that these are kind of alien beings. They actually share your values, all right? Same, same universities, same schools, same family upbringing, same churches. They share your values. The difference is not the values that they share with you. The difference is their duty requires them to apply our common values in circumstances you will never, ever face and frankly, we'll probably never even become aware of. But don't for a minute think that these folks have different values. Wow. Okay. I, you know, that, that is huge because you look at that. And I, 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 my first thought when you were talking about, I know this guy, this guy. And, and, and I, if I'm Joe regular amongst all of them, I'm thinking, yeah, but what do you know about me? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, it's scary in that sense, but, but you, you make – what I love about this book, it puts such a personal side to all the intelligence agencies, all the intelligence gatherers, and you put honor to faces that they're oh, kind of like offensive linemen. It, 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 is, it is honorable. There's a chapter in there, Craig, I'm sure, sure you read. It's called Espionage, Espionage, Bureaucracy, and Family Life. Right. In which I try to it, – it, it's kind of a Christmas tree. I, I, I hang a lot of ornaments on it, but one of the core themes is – personal price paid by the officers and particularly by their families and then the kind of values that you need to have and I begin the chapter uh, with a quote that I repeat three times in the chapter it's it's a line from a Bob Dylan song uh, beautiful sweet Marie which is side three of the double platinum blonde on blonde album. I knew I liked it because you got a little bit of rock and roll <laughs> yeah, in you buddy from, from from the mid 1960s and, and that line in there is when you're operating outside the law you really got to be honest. Yes. <laughs> and and I quickly I add, that. And I quickly add, CIA doesn't operate outside the law. And then I quickly add, well, CIA doesn't operate outside of U.S. law. Okay. <laughs> right. But it's it's in this perpetual gray area where your personal moral compass has got to be really really accurate in order mm-hmm. for you to do the kinds of things we we ask you to do. You know, it, it kind of leads into the next thing because I got to ask. It, one of the things I love, I never thought the CIA director would have a sense of humor plus be a little <laughs> rock and roller. And I think uh, we're, hey, the greatest news of a very troubled last year yes. was Bob Dylan getting the Nobel Prize. <laughs> <laughs> very good. Okay, um, can, we we have time for another question. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. One more. Okay, one one more question. I'm sorry, General, because this is one one thing that fascinated me. I in all of of, of the the intelligence and everything else going on, um, I, I found this one hilarious. Mohammed Rahim, he trashes you're, you. You got you got a terrorist. He's trashing LeBron James for leaving Cleveland. So, I'm going. Why? What are you kidding me? No, it's a true story. So. So Muhammad Rahim was a one tough Afghan. He's Muhammad Rahim al Afghani. Okay. And um, we we interrogated him hard, and he didn't tell us very much. And he ended up in Guantanamo. He had he had tremendous sense of loyalty. His lawyer, I mean, everyone down at Guantanamo is lawyered up now. His oh lawyers, his lawyers from Akron. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and 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 so he's learning all about what's happening and so on. Right. And he actually pens a letter to his l- lawyer in Akron after James. Did, decides he's going to be traded and he says mr james is a bad man he is a very bad man <laughs> i couldn't believe it <laughs> he has no sense of loyalty 
Of all things, this guy's worried about Le- LeBron James leaving the Cavs. Yeah. General Hayden, the book is Playing to the Edge, American Intelligence in the Age of Terrorism. You can get this, I'm sure, at uh, yeah, it's a- Amazon, hardback, uh, Are you doing any cover. book signings? I, I, have, I have, actually. Yeah, the, the paperback, Greg, came out about three or four weeks ago. So I, my, my Random, which was my publisher, sent me around to do a few things, and we've, we've had a couple of signings, yeah. Well, keep it moving, brother, because right. that is a great book. <laughs> thank you. Get out there, buy it, and thank you, sir, again. I am so privileged and thankful uh, for the opportunity to sit with you, sir. Always great to chat. Thank you. It was you. great. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you, man. We'll be back with the next week's broadcast right here on the Craig Wolfley Podcast. Thanks for listening. This is the Pittsburgh Podcast Network.